So when we last were in First Samuel two weeks ago, we were we heard the story about how um, God had called Samuel, and um, and we had the the interaction between Samuel and Eli, and at the very end of chapter three, the story was that Samuel had received a message from God, and so he was to give that message to Eli. And you'll recall that one of the things we noted about that was that uh, Eli, that, that Samuel was a reluctant messenger at that point because he had a relationship with Eli, and at the same time, he had a message that he was supposed to deliver the, to Eli that was not altogether easy. And that message was the downfall of Eli and uh, Hopni and Phineas, his sons. And so we are picking that story up in, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4. And the reason we're going to cover these four chapters is because they're, it's a unit. It fits together. And um, if you were here last weekend and you heard Mark Putado, one of the things that you noted, uh, you probably remember him talking about, was that typically the Hebrew authors use a, a structure in order to drive home their point. And that is certainly the case and in uh, chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7. And so hopefully as we work our way through it, you're going to see that structure kind of come out. I titled the sermon, The Glory of God, which you could probably title just about any sermon um, in any passage. But this text specifically is dealing with the idea of the glory of God. And when you talk about the glory of God, it's one of those things that's kind of hard to put your finger on. Um, if, if, I had a, if I had a basketball and I said, let's, let's describe this basketball, you could say, well, it's uh, 13 or 10 inches or whatever, whatever size, uh, you know, and across, and it's made out of rubber or leather, and it bounces, it's full of air. I mean, there are lots of ways to describe it. When you talk about the glory of God, you're talking about a concept so vast in, in the Bible that it's very challenging to put your finger on it. But the essence of it is the weightiness or the heaviness of God. That God is so substantive in all of his parts, in his name, in his attributes, that he is glorious but then we can talk about as well, we talk about the glory of God that descended upon the mount. And, and often in Scripture, God's glory is associated with light, with an overwhelming bright light. And so, um, and the cloud, it, again, right, now, you're, now you just start going down the road, and what you find out is it's really difficult just to quantify the idea of glory. But if you were to boil it all down, it comes down to the weightiness or the heaviness, the substantive nature of God. Now, you can think about the ways in we use the word heavy that way. Well, okay, hold on. Who, who, who lived in the 60s and 70s? Who was kind of, that was your heyday, right? Remember? I, I know. <laughs> Sorry. Hey, look, I, looked, I lived in the 60s. Born in '68, <laughs> but I wasn't—I wasn't exactly using the lingo. But I remember some of the lingo, and wasn't one of the words, "Hey, man, that's real heavy." Okay, now what does that mean? 
that means that's a that's a wow that's a that's a deep concept, dude, or whatever. I don't know what you said, but I've seen pictures of some of you from the sixties and seventies. But you you get the idea. We we use that idea of being heavy um, as well. It, it, it's kind of an it's it's an idea, and it's an idea in the Old Testament as well. So um, we're going to talk about the glory of God. We're going to talk about it under four points, kind of the four sections of Scripture. Okay, and um, and the first point is um, that the Israelites attempted to domesticate God. So we're going to have three D's and an R. Um, the glory of God was domesticated, the glory of God was dismissed, the glory of God was disregarded, and finally the glory of God is recovered. So let's talk about the first one. Uh, the first part of our story is that Israel attempts to domesticate God. How do they do this? Well, in the story in chapter 4, that Marian, the section that Marian read for us, the Israelites are going out to battle and they're at a place called Ebenezer, and um, that's 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 significant. Okay, you're going to see Ebenezer again at the very end of the story in chapter seven, but right here they're going out to battle in Ebenezer. It's a quick setup. They're going to go out. They're going to fight, and they do, and they lose, and um, and they come back, and the leaders of Israel they're they're scratching their head. How did this happen? And and so they they surmise well. Maybe what we should do is we should bring the Ark of the Covenant with us. And so they go and they get the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh where it's residing in the, uh, in the tabernacle and, um, and where it's supposed to reside in the tabernacle. Um, and they bring the Ark of the Covenant back out to the battlefield and they march it up. And Hopney and Phineas are with it. Um, that's part of their job. And so they accompany the Ark of the Covenant. And so they bring the ark up because they're surmising, right? So the logic in their head was, well, somehow maybe God wasn't with us that last battle, so let's go get his presence. So the ark of the covenant, you remember, is that place where the glory of God inside of the confines of the tabernacle was said to have dwelled. And he dwelled between the mercy seat. So on top of the ark of the covenant is this are the two angels and their wings are outstretched. And that is the place where God's glory, if you will, rested. And so when his glory would come down and it would sit on, uh, on the tent, that's where the glory of God was said to have rested. And then we know that inside the ark there are a number of artifacts. Um, most specifically, there would have been two copies of, is it two copies? that right? Two copies of the Ten Commandments? Anyways, um, there, there are two uh, exact duplicates of the Ten Commandments inside there because that's the mercy seat of God. And so typically the way that it would happen is um, you, would, you would take a, a copy of the covenant, would go underneath the king's chair, and then it would be given to the people. And, um, and since that is his seat, and those are his people, both copies are inside. But anyways, there is the ark. And so they understood, they had this idea that where the ark was, there was God's presence. And so in their logic, what they decide is, well, if we go and we get the ark of the Lord's covenant and we bring it out to the battlefield, voila! All of our problems will be solved, and we'll roll into victory. 
And that's what they do. They go, they get the ark, they bring it out, except the final result isn't what they were hoping for. The final result is that they rolled out and they were defeated again. Not only were they defeated, but the text tells us, verse 11, that the ark was carried off into captivity. The Philistines captured the ark of the Lord. And um, and it's as Israel is there, as they're thinking about this, they're thinking about how do we gain the upper hand? They go to sort of a, they, they forget who they are. They forget what the Lord has done. So that, that, that place that they're located at, Ebenezer, uh, the, the very name means thus far the Lord has helped us or the rock of help. And so they, they knew, I mean, they, they have a, a long history of God watching over them and protecting them and giving them victory. And yet in the passage, none of that is brought to account. They don't think on it. They don't pray on it. They don't, they don't call on God. They do none of that. Instead, they essentially resort to some sort of rabbit's foot theology. And they go and they, they say, you know, maybe, maybe we just need to bring the ark with us. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to prompt the presence of the Lord, right? If we do this, he has to do that. And unfortunately, that isn't the way that God works. He didn't work that way then. He doesn't work that way now. We don't domesticate God. We don't, we don't put him in, if you will, a box. We don't. We don't craft it that way. And God doesn't operate that way in our relationships. It isn't, you know, um, a, a quid pro quo, if you will, where we go and we do this, and so he is bound to do that. Here's the second part of the chapter that Bobby just read for us. In the second part, we read about the death. So in the second part, we get the death of Eli, Hopni, Phineas are re- recorded, and then uh, Phineas's wife or Eli's uh, daughter-in-law. And the way that this happens is that uh, the, the battle has happened. A messenger comes back. He makes his way all the way back. He gets there. It's plain. It's obvious that things have gone uh, south. Um, and, uh, and, and there's Eli sitting by the gates of the city. And he hears the ruckus, and he, he's asking what's up. And so the messenger comes and tells him and, and, and delivers the message to him. And you can take a look at the message. Um, the message is this. I've just come from the battle lines. I fled from it this very day. And Eli asked, what happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines, and the army suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons... Hopni and Phineas are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. And when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For he was an old man, and he was heavy. He had led Israel for 40 years. At the very same time as that is happening, 
the, the daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, who was pregnant and near the time of delivery, when she heard the news of the ark of God and that it had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor. She gave birth, overcome by labor pains, and she gives birth to a son, and she names the son Ichabod. And it's fascinating in the text. They bring, they're telling her, they know she's dying, and they're, they're trying to communicate to her. You know, it's almost as if they've got the baby there, and they're saying, look, look, your son, you've given birth to a son, and he's happy, he's healthy, he's going to be fine, everything's good. And she doesn't want, she doesn't, she doesn't acknowledge that at all. Instead, what she says is, his name is Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel. The glory has departed from Israel. So you're starting to see the development of the theme, right? The glory of God rested on the ark. The ark is is treated as some sort of a, a magic box for Israel. They bring it down to the battle. It's carried off by the Philistines. Now we move into this next section where essentially what is happening is what Samuel foretold is playing out. Because Samuel foretold that Eli and his son, that that reign, their their um, their time in, in the priesthood was over and that that family was done. And so now in the second half of chapter 4, you see that breakdown happening. And you see Phineas's wife totally lucid in understanding what all of this means. And she understands that the glory of God has departed Israel. Now, what does that mean? That's where we're headed. The glory of God has departed Israel. I want you to look back up because there's, there's one little tidbit that helps us begin to understand this idea. It's in verse 18. It's the rest of the story, if you will. In 18, we get two bits of information about Eli. The first is, he was very what? Old. The second is, he was very what? What? Heavy. So you remember Mark last week saying, Hebrew mothers taught their children to write and to not waste any words. Everything matters. Why the detail about his being heavy? What is, what is the author trying to get at? The author is trying to get at this. That little twist is that he is telling us because he's using a word that is the this carries the same root word as the root of glory. So remember I said glory means what? Heavy or weighty. Those are tied together. The word that's used there of 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 Eli's weight is part of the same carries the same root. So you have kavod, kabod, or you have kabed. Both have the same root, so they're con- it's a connected word. And the author has thrown that in as if to say, here is Eli, kabed. He has essentially the weightiness, the glory of God is around his waist. Okay, well, what? What in the world? And you have to go back one chapter to chapter, or two chapters to to verse 28. Chapter 2, verse 28. Turn and look, because this 
brings it all together. Remember, Eli and his sons for a long time had been offering sacrifices. And here's, here's what we read in verse 28 of chapter 2. Uh, uh, chapter 2, I choose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestor's family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Verse 29, why do you scorn my sacrifices and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by what? Fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel. So here's what was happening. The Israelites are coming. They're making their offerings to God. And when they do, what's supposed to happen is they're supposed to cut all the fat off of that, and the the fat gets offered to God. So it's offered up as a burnt offering. And then the meat is taken and can be consumed by the priests. But Eli and his sons wanted a nice... Who wants a roast with no fat on it? I mean, really? Is there anything more unappealing? No. They wanted the roast, and they wanted the fat connected to it. And so what they were doing was they were robbing God of the sacrifice of the burnt offering. And that's why the author tells us that Eli was blind and heavy. He was a heavy man because he had been eating the sacrifices intended for the Lord. He had been consuming them for himself. And we think, what's the big deal? I mean, we're talking about a cut of meat. No, we're talking about their approach to God. And Phineas and Hopney and Eli, they are the ones that are presenting the people to the Lord through their sacrifices That is their way of approach to God. And they're messing with the system that God himself had laid down. So God had said, this is how you approach me. And they decided that they would do it their own way. And so the writer throws that little twist in, and he's essentially telling us, where's the glory of God? The glory of God, if you really want to boil it down for all intents and purposes, is around Eli's waist. They had domesticated God. They they were putting him in their own box. They were doing what they wanted to do with respect to who he was, not what he wanted them to do with respect to who he was. There's another little twist in the story, and it's this. I already told you that the place is Ebenezer, a stone of help. Thus far the Lord has helped us. What's interesting in the story, and the writer draws this out is so as they're going to battle and as they bring the ark into the camp and the cheers go up what do the philistines do the philistines recognize they hear the they hear the cheer they said there must be a god in their camp and then they get it they make the connection and part of the connection here is that the philistines are actually part egyptian So they've heard the stories, the legendary stories about how God brought the people out of captivity. And so the roar goes up and the Philistines go, oh, we've heard about that God. We heard about how he rescued their people. And then they use it for affirmation, right? They nail it to the wall of the the training room and they tell their guys, look, 
If you want to whip those guys, you, you better remember who you're going up against. And they go out to battle and they defeat them. And what does this tell us? It tells us this. Israel failed to remember. They failed to remember, thus far the Lord has helped us at Ebenezer. And at the same time, strangely and oddly, the Philistines are the ones who are remembering who this God is. And it's all twisted. It's all backward. And that's driving home the point that what Israel was doing was they were using, they were using God. They were in trouble. And when they got in trouble, what did they do? Oh, let's go, get, let's go get God. Let's draw God into our battle. He'll win for us. And that moves us to our second point. If Israel had domesticated God, the Philistines dismissed him altogether. This, this is the humorous part of the story. Because what happens is the Philistines capture the ark. They take it. They put it straight in their temple with Dagon, who is their God. And... Um, uh, and the idea is that the, that the Ark of the Covenant, so they've, they've now taken the God, if you will. That's the way the Philistines saw it. Oh, we've captured their God. And so they bring the Ark of the Covenant in. They put it in, in the temple where Dagon is the, uh, there as a statue. They go off. They celebrate. The next morning they come into the temple, and Dagon is face down before the Ark. He's fallen over. And so, okay, they shuffle around, they put him back up, they go off, they do their thing. The next morning they come back in, whoop, Dagon has fallen over again, only this time his hands and his head. The only thing left is, the text says, Dagon. It's his body, it's his torso. And so they take Dagon and they push Dagon back up. But this is a day and age where you, you, you don't just fashion a new, you know, statue overnight there's no elmer's glue so there's dagon now the philistine god in their temple with no head and no hands and then people start to get wise and they start well sort of wise they start asking themselves you know this isn't good and so they surmise and they start moving the ark around the country. And everywhere the ark goes, there are five major cities and five major rulers in the, in, in the Philistine arena. And so they start moving this ark around and everywhere it goes, people are dying and they're getting the plague and they have tumors all over their bodies. And they, they had dismissed this God and at the same time, Oddly, strangely, but just like God, right? What is he essentially telling not only the Philistines, but his own people? If you boil it down, here's what he's saying. Now, don't take this the wrong way, but he's saying to them, I don't need you. I don't need you. I don't need you to fight my battles. I mean, think about the irony. The irony is Israel lined up thousands of foot soldiers to go to war against the Philistines. And oh, by the way, let's bring God along. And they get whipped. They go back home. The ark is carried off. The presence of God goes into the land of the Philistines. And everywhere the ark goes, God wins. In that, he is saying to them, 
You can't domesticate me, and you can't dismiss me. I am serious. I'm serious business, and I will carry out my sovereign plan. My will will be carried out in the end. Now, when we say he doesn't need us, it doesn't mean he doesn't want us. It just means he is the sovereign, and he can do whatever it is he wants to do, and he does. Without firing a shot, without one foot soldier with a with his, uh, um, with his sword, without a spear, without a chariot, without any of that, Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, brings the Philistines to their knees. Seven months later, they finally wake up and they realize <laughs> maybe we should send that ark back to Israel. And so they concoct a plan and they put it on a couple of cattle and they put it on a cart. And the story is that they send it down the road to Beth Shemesh. And as it's going down the road, the five rulers. Now, here's the, here's the crazy thing. What do they put on it? Well, along with the ark, they put five golden, tu- five golden tumors and five rats. Apparently, I know, right? <laughs> you can't make this up. And what they did is they, they took a mold, apparently, of the tumors that they had on their bodies, and they, they made five golden tumors, and they put those on there, representing the five cities and the five rulers. And then they took five golden rats, because apparently there had been some outbreak of rats. And if you start tying it together, right, they get it. The Philistines understood how powerful God was because in chapter 6, they call on the Exodus event again. They remember the story of the plagues. They remember all of that. And so the religious leaders say, you know, maybe what we should do is we should just let their God go. Instead of doing it like Pharaoh did and try to hold on to all this, how about we just send this thing back? Let's just let God go. And that's what they do. They let him go in the process, much exactly the same way the Exodus happened, right? So remember in the Exodus, they're loaded down with all of the gold of the Egyptians as they make their way out. They essentially plunder them on the way out the door while they're still reeling from all of the plagues. In exactly the same way, without doing anything, they plunder the Philistines. And that cart with the, with the ark goes back, and it tells us that the rulers went all the way to the border, and they watched to make sure that the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh got the ark. And as soon as they knew that it was safe, they returned home. Let's move to the third point. The third point is that as the ark returned home, the glory of God is now disregarded. We'll move quickly because I want to spend a little more time on the fourth point. 
But here's essentially what happens. The ark gets to Beth Shemesh. The people rejoice, right? I mean, who? The, the Israelites are happy. They're excited that the ark has come home. It's been seven months. It's been umpteen years prior to that where they weren't thinking correctly about who God was and about God's glory. And so they make a few fatal errors. The first is they offer the cows as sacrifices. That's their first error. They were supposed to offer bulls as burnt offerings. So they take the cattle, they offer them as sacrifices, burnt sacrifices, as opposed to offering the bulls that they were required to offer. The second thing that they do is um, to move through, through the text is they took the ark and they put it up on a high rock so that everybody could see the ark. Mistake number two. We know from earlier texts that what was supposed to happen to the ark when it's in the presence of the people is it's behind a veil. And then when they moved, when they would break camp and they would take all of that and they would go somewhere else, then they covered the ark up. They took the veil down and they covered the ark so that it wasn't exposed. It's not a museum piece. It's, it's not, it doesn't march out in front of everybody and, unless God ordains that or he calls for that. So in normal operations, the ark is intended to be covered and shielded. Why? Because it's the glory of God. Because it is the weightiness of God. And what does God say? You don't just come to me. You don't just approach me however you want to, which is why it's behind a veil. That's why it's covered when it's moving. Because there was still at this time that reminder for us that there's something between us. And in order to access God, there must be a sacrifice. So, those are the first two. And then the third one. The text tells us that they looked into the ark. Now, we don't know exactly what that, we don't know exactly what the violation was. One of the best guesses is that as they went and looked into the ark, they touched the ark. But Whatever it was, it wasn't right. And again, it it does seem to indicate this cavalier nature that they had with respect to the glory of God. And the text tells us that 70 of them died. And essentially, they just disregarded the Lord. He had laid down and had prescribed for them the ways of, They were to approach him. And all through the text, they're just doing it their own way. This way seems okay. This way seems right to us. But it wasn't. And at the very end of the passage, in chapter 6, they ask a question. And the question is this. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord? So, You've had all of these things happen as the ark was away with the Philistines. Now the ark has come home. The people of Beth Shemesh have been struck down. They've had 70 people die. And they have a logical question that they're asking. And the question is, who can stand in the presence of the Lord? You see it in verse 20. The people of Beth Shemesh ask, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? 
to whom will the ark go up from here? They send it to Kirith-Jerim, and it stays for 20 years. And that's where we come to our last point, the glory of God recovered. So think of everything that's gone on. Now we've waited 20 years. The ark goes up to Kirith-Jerim, and it sits there at a guy's house for 20 years. They didn't take it back down to Shiloh. They didn't put it back in the tabernacle. Instead, they sent it off to Kirith-Jerim where it sits for 20 long years. And apparently, the people of Israel just went on normally living life during those 20 years. That's a long period of time. And actually, kind of what is going on here is a little bit of a throwback to the book of Judges where the people would go through these periods, right, where they would do their own thing for a period, and then things would go bad, and they would cry out to the Lord, and the Lord would send an answer to them, usually in the form of a judge. And so what seems to happen here is, for 20 years, the ark is out of sight, out of mind, and then we get to chapter 7. If you've got your Bibles, turn there. It's the second half of chapter 2. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you're returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of all the foreign gods, of all the Asherahs, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And so the Israelites put away their Baals and Asherahs, and they served the Lord only. There are several things that happen. Israel wakes up. Oh, now think about this. Because he, Samuel specifically says, if you want to be delivered out of the hands of the Philistines, so for 20 years, they've essentially lived under the oppressive hand of the Philistines in some way. I don't know exactly what that looks like. I guess what it means is they beat us twice in battle, and they beat us soundly, and so we're kind of, you know, in some subservient role to them. But Samuel is clear, and he says to them, if you want that to end, you have to turn back to the Lord. He's calling on them to repent. And he's saying, listen, in order for that repentance to be real, you've got to put away your other gods. You've got to turn to the Lord and worship, and you've got to call out to him. And that's exactly what they do. They put away their gods in verse 5. Samuel calls a corporate worship service, and all the people come together, and they begin a fast. And at their fast, they take their water, and they pour it out on the ground. And this is the, 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 um, the you know, various commentators talk about this. It's not a practice that was known, but what they seem to be saying is, listen, in our feast, uh, I mean, in our fast, what we're going to do is just acknowledge that fast by pouring, by pouring our um, our water out onto the ground, and that's what they do. And then the next step is critical. The next step in the text is that Samuel goes and he takes a lamb from the flock, and he offers it as a sacrifice. And he offers it as a sacrifice as the people are going out to war against the Philistines. And they win. And that's the story, almost. Let's ask the question. Let's ask the same question that the residents of Beth Shemesh were asking. Who can stand 
in the sight of the Lord. Because that's the, that's the crux. Who can stand in the glory of the Lord? Who can bear the glory of the Lord? And the answer is, and Samuel gives it to us, the one who repents and has their sin covered. Listen to Paul in Romans 3.23. Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, what? Freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And then he says this in verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. And through the shedding of His blood, we now stand. See, God takes our sin seriously. He did the sin of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, and the people of Israel who put up with that for years and years and years. He took their sin so serious that he himself became for them a sacrifice. And here's how he did that. He took upon himself his own heavy hand. If you look at the passage, if you, did, if you go and you do a search through these uh, various chapters, what you'll see is that the hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Philistines. It shows up specifically in chapter 5 a fair bit. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the Philistines. So what should have happened? If you go back and you look at the book of Deuteronomy, what you'll see is that in covenant unfaithfulness, the law required that a person be exiled. And to be exiled was to be cut off from the people of God, to be sent away. So think about what's happened in the text. What happens in the text is the people sin against God, Hophni and Phinehas, and all of that is all of that has gone on. And the people never once offer sacrifice. So in chapter four, which is really the critical chapter, they're going off into battle. They should have been offering sacrifices to God. Instead, they trotted God out as a magic rabbit's foot, and they asked him to go into battle and just win it for them magically instead of the prescribed route for God's favor. And so what happens? God himself is carried off into captivity. God himself goes to the land of the Philistines. He goes there. He bears that, being with the Philistines cut off from his people. I'm not making this up. Psalm 78, verses 60 and 61. Listen to the way the psalmist describes it. This is a reference to the text we're reading. He says, He abandoned the tabernacle at Shiloh, the tent he had set up among man. He sent the ark of his might into captivity, his splendor, his glory into the hands of the enemy. God himself in the text goes into exile. He let himself be carried into exile. He let the Israelites lose so that he could go into exile and bear the burden for the people. Now that's just a picture. It's a picture of what he does for us because in Christ, what do we have? We have the Son of God bearing the heavy hand of God for us. 
Listen to Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace through God through our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 2, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace which we now, what? Stand. And we boast. He finishes it by saying, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. 1 Samuel 4, I know it's a lot, but 1 Samuel 4, 5, 6, 7. What an amazing picture of the people of God struggling their way through life. And God, instead of cutting them off, instead of dealing harshly with them, He shows them His love by taking His own heavy hand upon Himself. And then, raising up one for them in the person of Samuel who would announce the good news to them and who would give the prescribed sacrifice. And of course we know what God does for us in the person of Jesus as He places His heavy hand upon Him. He sends Him into exile and He makes us one with Himself. All for His glory and for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, thank You. Thanks for Your Word. Thanks for the reminder that's in it of Your love for us, of Your grace and Your mercy. Father, thank You for the story of Samuel, of his faithfulness. Thank You, Father, for loving us and pursuing us and not cutting us off, but pursuing us all the way to the end. We ask now that you'll go with us into this week for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.